following was written by Reverend Eric Cherry, who is the director of the International Office at the Unitarian Universalist Association. I admit that I have an impulse to protect people who are new to Unitarian Universalism from the T-word. I'll perform linguistic gymnastics to avoid uttering it. I'll refer to this place as Western Romania, a former part of Hungary, Eastern Europe, Erde, anything but the T-word. I'll do this because of fear that Americans, and potentially new UUs, carry so much fictional baggage about the T-word that they'll run away, either in fear or in laughter, if I utter it with seriousness. That may be ridiculous or cowardly, but I admit that I do it. This is a challenge worth facing, because Hungarian Unitarianism, its leaders, its members, its churches, are in my heart and soul. I am committed to sharing their good news, their story, and their relationship to the American Unitarian Universalism, but I don't want to lose people because of a difficult word. So, I am careful. Eventually, I find a way to offer up a request, and I offer that same request to you today. If Transylvania conjures images of vampires and werewolves and fairy tales, try to set that aside as a merely a Hollywood trope. In reality, Transylvania is a geographical area in Europe. Since World War II, it has become part of Romania, and prior to that, it was part of the Kingdom of Hungary and a vessel state of the Ottoman Empire. It's not gloomy or dark or even very mysterious at all. It's beautiful. I mean, really beautiful, with mountains and valleys and rivers and small villages with a few larger cities. The people there offer a hospitality that is measurable by American standards. There, in 1568, religious freedom was declared by government and religious leaders. There, Unitarianism found its first home. Let the word Transylvania start to conjure new images, real and true images. Forget the storybooks. In this case, fiction is much less interesting than fact. Here's a fact. For 450 years, aside from a few short years of political influence, Transylvanian Unitarian, the Transylvanian Unitarian Church has suffered serious oppression from leaders of other religious traditions, from Romanian nationalists who despise the Hungarian language and culture within Unitarianism, and from communism, which for much of the 20th century made it impossible for the Unitarian Church of Transylvania to arise without being struck down. Those are facts. Here's another one. The people held on. As dangerous as being an active Unitarian has been in Transylvania over the centuries, people held on. Transylvanian Unitarians learned what it means to sacrifice for their faith. They know something we only grasp occasionally, that the existence of Unitarianism, a historic tradition that we share, is worth suffering and dying for. In the consumerist culture that affects American religious movements, even in Unitarian Universalism, people sometimes walk away from the church after they've gotten as much as they can from it. In Transylvania, the Unitarian Church would have faded long ago if people didn't ask instead, what does the church need from me? And how ironic that this question comes from people who have often given or often had very little materially to share. Yes, they give generously even of that but what they have given has sustained their church in spiritual commitment. Don't let the T word get in the way of sharing the story. And beyond the story, let us open our hearts to the transformative relationships that can be built and grown through global faith. 
Once the fairy tales are set aside, we can face yet more interesting, challenging, and difficult matters that come up with sturdy, trusting relationships and become courageous and resilient through them. Yes, the T word is the least important matter in committed global partnership. So much more valuable is the opportunity to build an intercultural competency, to learn lessons of mutuality and sharing, to deconstruct oppressive systems based on neo-colonialism. Perhaps most valuable of all, to consider the theological matters of sitting at the table with siblings in faith, each bringing experience, commitment, visions that can contribute to everyone's spiritual growth. In this way, we can come to know the greatest gift of sharing global faith, the fortification of our own hope. No longer there is an excuse no longer is there an excuse to feel trapped by feelings of frustration, of sorrow, of emptiness in facing global challenges. As Thomas Merton once wrote, in the end, it is the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. In the end, sharing global faith heals our broken hearts. To love like this is to create goodness in the world. And my friends, God knows goodness is needed in the world today. Neighbors, let us travel across time and space to Eastern Europe, to the Kingdom of Hungary 450 years ago. It is a time of religious and political chaos. For hundreds of years, this tiny kingdom has been a place of constantly negotiated and renegotiated borders and boundaries religiously politically, and culturally. Different ethnic groups and speakers of different languages live alongside one another, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. This is where the Catholic Church meets the Orthodox Church with the Ottoman Empire, a Muslim empire, not too far distant and very influential. Before the Protestant Reformation even officially began, there were dissenting Christian movements taking root in the region, including the Hussite church, who were the first to use their chalice, the chalice as a symbol, symbol we borrowed centuries later. That is another story for another day. When the Protestant Reformation began and new religious ideas about the nature of God and how church should work began to spread, they quickly took root in this already religiously diverse corner of Europe. The followers of Luther and Calvin spread their good news. There are also some radical Protestants that others called Unitarians because they believe in one God, not the Trinity. They are also sharing their good news. Into this time of chaos comes King John Sigismund of Hungary and Transylvania. He ascended to the throne as a very young child, and his mother ruled in his stead for years. It was not just a time of religious chaos, but political chaos. King John's father had been the richest nobleman in Hungary, and when they needed a new king, the other lords elected him king. But a significant number dissented and began a civil war that lasted throughout John's life. 
When John was young, his mother served as his regent and brilliantly played the competing political interests against each other, forming alliances with the Ottoman emperor. And even so, they both spent a number of years in exile. As King John grew, he became a religious seeker. He had preachers from all of the major Christian factions preach to him and debate one another and converted three times before finally settling on being a Unitarian. He was the only Unitarian king in history. King John recognized the value of the religious quest and wanted his subjects, at least some of them, to be free to seek the truth. In 1568, 450 years ago this month, a legislative assembly gathered at Torda issued an edict proclaiming religious tolerance under the strong urging of King John and his court preacher, Francis David. Why, I think King John is here right now to proclaim it anew. It is a pleasure to be here with you. I feel as if I have begat you. I have begat your church. This is my edict, known as the Edict of Torta. His Majesty, our Lord, in what manner he, together with his realm, legislated in the matter of religion at the previous diets, in the same matter now in this diet, reaffirms that in every place the preachers shall preach and explain the gospel, each according to his understanding of it. And if the congregation like it, well, if not, no one shall compel them, for their souls would not be satisfied. But they shall be permitted to keep a preacher whose teaching they approve. Therefore, none of the superintendents or others shall abuse the preachers. No one shall be reviled for his religion by anyone, according to the previous statutes. And it is not permitted that anyone should threaten anyone else by imprisonment or by removal of his post for his teaching. For faith is a gift of God. And this comes from hearing, which hearing is by the word of God. I understand that you may have some questions for me. I do, King John, as long as we, we have you here. Um, I'm curious, how, how did you become king, and did you want to be king? I became... Oh, King, we need you to use the microphone. 
people will not be able to hear you, and you came all this way. Another <laughs> unique item. <laughs> I was deemed the king of the Eastern Hungarian territory at the age of two weeks. My mother was my regent. Upon her death, I then became the full king. And how did you become a Unitarian? <laughs> well, I became a Unitarian because my court doctor and my court preacher, who were both uh, anti-Trinitarians, convinced me to, to consider Unitarianism. And they cajoled me and they talked to me. Uh, I heard them speak in debates between Lutherans and uh, Christians. And I decided to try it out. I decided to to explore. I'm a very open-minded man. I'm also very outspoken. And uh, this is when we began talks about it, and I, I came up with my, my edict. Is there anything else? Well, I know in this anniversary time, you have a lot on your schedule. A lot of conjuring to appear in different churches this morning, I'm sure, especially. So thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Uh, what is this called? A mi <laughs> microphone? It's a microphone. Yeah, a lot has changed since you were king. Thank you. Don't tell King John this, but his story doesn't end well. There continued to be tremendous conflict between him and the people who didn't think he should be king, with much of the opposition to John rooted in opposition to his radical religious ideas. Two years after the edict, King John signed a treaty with the other faction in the Civil War, to make peace, he renounced his title of king and became a prince of Transylvania instead. And less than a year after that treaty was signed, King John Sigismund died, or Prince John Sigismund. He was 30 years old. He left no heirs, and the nobles elected a Roman Catholic lord to be the next prince of Transylvania. And what of this little-known edict that we are remembering today. What is its legacy? First, it is important to know that the edict itself is not as sweeping a declaration of religious freedom as you might first think, as we might first hope. Religious freedom was allowed only for the four so-called national churches of Hungary, the Catholic Church, 
the Reformed Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Unitarian Church. Others were not granted religious freedom, and there were significant numbers of others, including Christian Orthodox, Muslims, and Jews in the kingdom. Another way that the edict might not meet our modern expectations is that it grants religious freedom to communities, not to individuals. It protects the rights of preachers, but not the rights of the people sitting listening to those preachers. The freedom is granted to congregations as a whole to determine who their leaders are without interference from the bishops, but not to individuals to follow the teachings of their own conscience. And when freedom is granted to a community as a whole and not individuals, it often means that the only people with real freedom are the most powerful people in that community. Less powerful people, women, children, men who are not rich or influential, did not have their lives change very much under this edict. And even with all of those nuances, the edict was a powerful idea. In a time when disputes about doctrine were fueling wars, here was a small kingdom trying to chart another path. In a time of religious violence, here was a small kingdom attempting peaceful coexistence for some. In a time when people were being forcibly converted, when their rulers changed their minds religiously, here was a king who told his subjects that no one should compel them or threaten to imprison them because of their beliefs. That in itself is a powerful example, a story worth remembering today. And what of the larger legacy of the Unitarian Church in Transylvania? They are our siblings in spirit. And the truth is the historical connections between King John and the other Transylvanian Unitarians and our American Unitarian heritage are quite tenuous. It's hard to track the spread of ideas centuries later with any certainty, but it's hard to put a... a strong line from them to us. Were the English and American Unitarians that we can trace a direct lineage to influenced by the Transylvanians? Or did they come to similar radical conclusions about the nature of God on their own? It's hard to know. And we might never know. Perhaps some writings made their way west and influenced the people who founded our tradition. Perhaps not. Regardless, these connections still matter. Regardless, it's important to be connected to the people who claim a theological position similar to ours, who believed in freedom of religion long before such ideas were proclaimed on this continent. Our connections to our siblings and spirit matter in part because they can remind us of the sacrifice our faith calls us to make. The reality is that religious tolerance and religious freedom are not common in most of history and much of the world today. Transylvanian Unitarianism flourished for a brief few years during the time of King John and Francis David, that influential court preacher the king spoke about. The Unitarians then endured centuries of struggling to survive. 
There were laws passed saying that the four protected denominations could not change their doctrines, which does not work well for a faith tradition like ours that recognizes that reason and experience continually shape our faith, that revelation was not handed down at one time forever, but truth is continuously being revealed around us. So not long after that rule was put in place, Francis David, the leader of the Transylvanian Unitarians, was found guilty of innovation in religion, and he died in prison. In the decades and centuries that followed, the Transylvanian Unitarian community endured. They endured hostile monarchs, they endured communism, they endured religious wars and attempts at forced conversions, they endured the suppression of their language. Nevertheless, they persisted. Nevertheless, they are still there in their historic villages and towns, practicing the faith that shares a name, if not every detail, with the faith we practice. I know People's Church has had a partner church relationship with one of these communities, and some of you have gone to see them. While the edict of Torda and the brief season of religious tolerance it began is a noteworthy historical moment, the longer story of endurance is much more compelling to me. I and many of us have not been called on to suffer or sacrifice for our faith in significant ways. I've been insulted. I've been called a heretic and that I'm going to hell. But that's really the extent of it. And it's pretty easy to shake off, at least as an adult. It was harder when I was a kid. And this is not the case for so many Unitarians, Universalists, and Unitarian Universalists in other parts of the world. We know that the Unitarians of Burundi are largely in exile now because of the political chaos in their country. Universalists in the Philippines are struggling as a religious minority in that land. And as Eric Cherry wrote and Silas read earlier, we have much to learn from our siblings who are suffering for our shared faith. As dangerous as being actively Unitarian has often been in Transylvania over the centuries, he writes, people held on. Transylvanian Unitarians learned what it means to sacrifice for their faith. They know something we only grasp occasionally, that the existence of Unitarianism, a historic tradition we share, is worth suffering and dying for. We are not called to be martyrs for our faith, and that is a very, very good thing. But we do need to know the stories of the people who took bold stands for religious freedom, like King John Sigismund and Francis David. But more importantly, we need to remember the communities who persisted through nationalism, war, and oppression to cling fast to the ideas that there should be no compulsion in religion. Truth is ever unfolding, and we reserve the right to change our minds when it comes to our religious beliefs. So may we remember these stories and these truths. May we go out into the world to live our stories and our truths in ways that are worth remembering. And may it be so. May we make it so. And amen.